In the weeks following George Floyd's killing at the hands of the police, amidst the fire, the protests, and the calls to action, a clear division in political discourse began to emerge. While there were those who supported the Black Lives Matter movement unequivocally, many others began to condemn the violent turns some protests had taken. Now to all the people who are protesting, please, even if you're expressing that pain, that anger, that sense that something's wrong and must be fixed, please remember how important it is to protest peacefully. Remember, the only way we're going to make things right is by somehow finding a way to work together. It is equally true that violence never works. How many protests have we had? How many nights have we gone through like last night? How many times have we burned down our own businesses, our own neighborhoods, and our own communities? Burning down your own house never works and never makes sense. Politicians clambered for new ways to say, not like this, not in this way. This is not in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. This is chaos. You're not honoring the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. You're not protesting anything running out with brown liquor in your hands, breaking windows in this city. The message seemed to be, while I understand and see your anger, there is no place for violence in this conversation. It is unpatriotic, un-American, and betrays the very values civil rights leaders fought for. Today, we take a closer look at the truthfulness of that message and ask ourselves, is political violence really so foreign to the history of American activism? You're listening to Cognitive Dissident, a podcast on politics and minority history. I'm your host, Kalyani Saxena. In order to understand how violence has shaped the activism we see today, I wanted to go back and take a look at some of the first and most impactful activists in American history, Black abolitionists. Here to walk us through it is Kelly Carter-Jackson. Kelly Carter-Jackson is an assistant professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College. Her research focuses on slavery, the abolitionists, violence as political discourse, and Black women's history. Her book, Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence came out in 2019. Welcome, Dr. Carter-Jackson. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So your book, Force and Freedom, is one of the first to analyze the historical use of violence by Black abolitionists. How do we typically talk about the fight for abolition during the 19th century? And what are we missing when we're only considering Mm. this mainstream depiction? Oh, man. So it always bums me out when students come to me with the idea that the abolitionist movement was like a white man's struggle to end slavery. That, oh, like white people get to be both the villain and the heroes. They're the perpetrators of slavery. And then they're like the saviors that come in. And, and so I start with black abolitionists for several reasons. One, 
they are the first abolitionists. Um, no one needed to tell black people that slavery was wrong. You know, no one, <laughs> no, no one needed to tell them, you know, you should really be free. So they are the first people advocating for the um, abolition of slavery. They bear the brunt of pro-slavery violence and force. So, you know, it's black churches that get burned down. It's black schools that get destroyed. It's black homes that are, you know, burned down as a result of like pro-slavery violence. So that's not to say that white abolitionists aren't targeted. They are, um, but they don't bear the brunt of the violence. And then lastly, I feel like Black abolitionists are so important because they create the blueprint that pretty much everybody else after them follows. So that when we look at activism, politically, socially, um, morally, Everyone is like looking at what the abolitionists did, what they did with print culture, what they did with rhetoric, what they did uh, politically becoming, you know, organized within the Senate or within the House. Um, I feel like you see those same things being replicated in the 20th century. And I, for one, as a Muslim, believe that the white man is intelligent enough. If he were made to realize how black people really feel and how fed up we are without that old compromising sweet talk. Stop sweet talking him. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how, what kind of hell you've been catching and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. A lot of times people will look at my work and they're like, oh, it's so similar to like Malcolm X or Martin Luther King and this violent or nonviolent approach. And I'm like, yeah, but a hundred years earlier, right? Like, right. Like King, what King and Malcolm are talking about is not new. It's actually old. And um, and the abolitionists are the ones that, that set the framework for it. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I think every time that there's like a new wave of, well, actually, it's not even accurate to say it's like a new wave of Black activism because it's continuous. It's more yeah, just like, yeah. when does the media pay attention to it? Yeah, it's yeah. almost like people act as if some like individual event triggered it when really this activism has been going on for so long. And and what you were saying about your students coming to you and talking to you about abolition being a white man's struggle. So I took Making of the Modern World at Wellesley, mm. which is, you know, this supposedly like liberal progressive institution. And I never once, not once learned about any black abolitionists. <gasps> Shush, that's breaking my heart. That's breaking my heart. Oh, and it's, and it's great. Like, I fully believed for a long time that that was what abolition looked like. Wow. So, wow. and that was something that I learned as a sophomore in college. Wow. I mean, that's, oh man, that's grievous to me. <laughs> it's grievous only because like one, I don't, I think oftentimes when we talk about the making of the modern world, Haiti gets a footnote. You know, we don't talk about the Haitian Revolution and really everything hinges off the Haitian Revolution. Like you don't get an expanded United States without the Haitian Revolution. Right. Like you don't get France needing to like, you know, offset all of this land to create more wealth to pay for its bills from fighting Haitians. Like mm-hmm. you don't get 
freedom, like like the Haitian Revolution was the only revolution that talked about equality and then actually freed their slaves. You know, I mentioned the Haitian Revolution a lot because the people that I studied, the black abolitionists, people like Frederick Douglass, people like um, Henry Highland Garnett, they are talking about the Haitian Revolution as the motivation for their activism. And so Mm -hmm. they're like, okay, we see the founding fathers. We see you, you know, Washington and Jefferson, but you guys are hypocrites. Like the real hero, the real motto is Haiti and Toussaint Louverture and Dessalines and Christophe. And so um, they rationalize, okay, if slavery starts with violence, if it's sustained by violence or through violence, then it will only be overthrown through violence. People often critique violence as being counterproductive Mm -hmm. to a social movement, as in you're alienating potential white allies. Mm -hmm. And you you kind of talked a little bit about this, but, you know, like, why exactly did Black abolitionists turn to political violence? And was Mm -hmm. it more effective than the nonviolent approach? This is the scary truth. So, um, and I have to be careful the way I say this, because people are always like, are you condoning violence? And I'm like, no, chill, chill. But... um, (laughs) But we have to be honest with ourselves. And that is when we look at major turning points along a historical timeline, Mm -hmm. every major moment, pivot, dot um, is violence, right? Is hinged on violence. So if we're looking at the American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the Civil War, uh, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, post 9-11, um, you know, yeah. Stonewall, you know, like even the civil rights movement for all of its nonviolence is really about a response to violence, violence at the voting booth. We're willing to be beaten for democracy and you misuse democracy in the streets. Violence at the lunch counter. <laughs> Violence in churches where four little girls are killed. 18 days after the march on Washington, Birmingham, Alabama, a bomb exploded in the 16th Street Baptist Church just before a Sunday morning service. 15 people were injured. Four children were killed. You know, assassinations. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was shot to death by an assassin late today as he stood on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, that whole moment is about violence. And so first, I think we need to be honest about how violence has operated in our own framework for change politically, economically, morally, you name it. Second, I think that, um, you know, abolitionists were called abolitionists, not reformers, meaning they weren't trying Mm -hmm. to reform slavery. They were trying to abolish slavery. (laughs) And so, like, you can't just make tweaks and changes to the system. This is why people, you know, talk about abolishing the police because they realize that, you know, tweaks and these little, like, you know, um, you know, diversity seminars are not going to do it. That it takes a drastic um, act in order for an entire system to be overthrown. And slavery was so, so profitable and so steeped into this country that I do think that violence was required. I don't think you were going to morally persuade people to free their slaves and that people would have this sort of come to Jesus moment about it right. and, and say, oh, you know what? This this is wrong. This is bad. You're human. Uh, my bad. My boo Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> like, they weren't going to do that. I think the only time... and. 
this is what other scholars say, that the only time that abolitionists had a real um, hearing was when the cost of cotton or the cost of sugar dropped. So when it was economically no longer profitable, people right. were more willing to listen to what the abolitionists were saying. Oh, what's that you say about slavery being wrong? Yeah, maybe we should find something now. Sugar is not making money like it used to. But when right. sugar's making money, when cotton is king, oh my God, like you trying to talk about abolitionists is, is like treasonous. And so I can't say that the Civil War was inevitable, but I do argue that violence was required to overthrow the institution of slavery, simply based on how slavery itself functioned. Yeah. And what I think, even when you're talking about the civil rights era, like it was motivated by violence. So when we're talking about political violence by black activists, we're never talking about like the economic and physical and political violence that incited it, that created Mm -hmm. it and and Mm -hmm. created the conditions for it. Yes. What I try to get students to realize is that, you know, when we think about the civil war, like a lot of students will say, oh, well, this was like a moral conflict, like slavery was wrong, slavery's a right. sin, slavery's evil. You know, we use these very like moralistic terms um, and we don't talk about the economic dynamic of it. We might talk about the political aspect, like, oh, states' rights or something like that. Right. But, but the, the economics of it, there was nothing more valuable than slavery. There was nothing more profitable. Mississippi had the highest number of millionaires per capita. Wow. Mississippi, Mississippi is like 50 <laughs> out of 50 in everything. You know, like poverty, Mississippi is 50 out of 50. And the reason why is because they were the wealthiest state because they hinged so much of their wealth on slavery. So when they were stripped of slavery, Mississippi had nothing left. And Mississippi is still grappling with the fact that it could not relinquish, you know, a slave economy. So, um, I mean, if you think about the fact that the richest states were all in the six out of the seven richest states are all in the South, like this is a money machine. This is like the ultimate drug game, especially if you're thinking about it in terms of like the Caribbean. Um, I want people to apply the same sort of economics to slavery. So you also make a concerted effort in your book to depart from what you refer to as the romanticism of the Underground Railroad. What exactly do you mean by that? And and, and why choose to depart from that? I, I realized that I had been given very romantic stories about the Underground Railroad. And when I say romantic, I mean like these very heroic mm-hmm. people who would just all of a sudden they had an epiphany, they chose to leave and they ran away and they made it to this the north which is like a false utopia of freedom (laughs) and you know like we have or we hear these stories about you know white abolitionists who um who engineer the underground railroad or help or in some ways you know ferret people away but i think we have these very seductive ideas about how people were able to run away and what we don't realize is that Fleeing often required fighting, that people had to arm themselves, that this was deadly. And those are the stories I think that we don't tell, yeah. that that fleeing required fighting, that sometimes fleeing required death, the death of um, slave catchers, and that this was the deadliest catch. Trying to retrieve fugitive slaves could cost you your life. People, enslaved people, fugitives, they armed themselves 
um, when they were trying to get out of slavery. And then when they had gotten out of slavery and got into the North or got into these safe havens, they continued to arm themselves and, and protect other fugitives and protect their communities. And it wasn't just about self-defense. Um, you know, I call it protective violence, meaning that this was a collective effort, not just to protect your household, but your community. Mm-hmm. Um, your kin, other fugitives, other marginalized and oppressed people, that you did whatever you could, even risking your own life, to ensure that they found freedom and, and lived a free and full life. In the book description, one of the things that's mentioned is the role of the Black press. And I found that really fascinating, especially as someone who's coming into an industry like journalism that has for so long been white owned and dominated by white reporters and white producers. And this is kind of an alternate form of the press. And I'm just like, what did it look like? And and how important was it? Yeah, I, I think that the Black press was one of the most instrumental tools of the Black community and and Black activists. Um, When we think about the liberator, this was William Lloyd Garrison's paper. William Lloyd Garrison is a white abolitionist, one of the founding fathers of the American Anti-Slavery Society. He starts a newspaper called The Liberator. His paper could not have functioned without Black um, patrons. Black people were so invested in reading his newspaper because they're like, here's a white guy that cares about anti-slavery causes and is invested in our immediate emancipation, not gradual, because some white abolitionists were like, oh, we'll give you freedom eventually. And he was like, no, freedom now. And so... um, Black people just consumed the liberator uh, over and over and over again. And he inspired other Black leaders like Frederick Douglass to start their own newspapers. Um, And when they do, I mean, it's quite remarkable. Some of them have short lives. You know, there's not a lot of longevity. It's really expensive running a press. You have Absolutely. To get people to buy in. Uh, so the same challenges that <laughs> that people have today in terms of getting marketing and getting buy-in um, were sort of the same problems that Black, you know, um, editors were having. But one of the first Black woman newspaper editors is Mary Ann Chad Carey. And she is responsible for... Um, helping to recruit Black people to come to Canada, to live better lives in Canada. When the Civil War breaks out, she uses her press to help recruit Black soldiers and Black men to fight in the war. The press is instrumental. And I see, in a lot of ways, I see Black Twitter as a direct extension of the genesis of the Black press in the 19th century. Um, There were hundreds of, of newspapers and and if you think about it, you know, even the press was segregated. So you had to have black newspapers right. if you wanted to know about black issues. Even in the 20th century, there's still a vibrant black press because the news was still segregated. And you might even say that today the news is still segregated in terms of what gets <laughs> in terms of what gets published who gets to have um, not just a voice, but volume. I think people now have social media as an outlet to be able to express their political, you know, beliefs and ideas, but it's so much of an extension of what we saw in the, in the 19th century. Um, 
by abolitionists and activism who were using the word and the press to voice their grievances. So you talk often about violence as a political language. Where in American history can we trace the origins of that language and who gets to speak it? Mm. 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 Such a good question. So I think we are most familiar with violence as a political language in the American revolutionary moment. So when we think about Patrick Henry's most famous phrase, Give me liberty or give me death. um, This was an idea that was perpetuated over and over again and repeated everywhere. And when I started thinking about violence as a political language, I started thinking about it not in terms of the founding fathers, but in terms of enslaved people, the oppressed and the marginalized. And what do you do when you don't have traditional channels like the ballot, like the ability to be able to vote um, or the ability to have real like citizenship and enfranchisement in terms of how you move and navigate throughout a world socially and politically and economically? Um, And I think that when you don't have those tools. I mean, you don't have that sort of um, buy-in, that citizenship. Mm -hmm. Violence is one of the ways that you can communicate your identity and your goals. And so MLK, and I know a lot of people have been using Martin Luther King's quote lately, but it's when he says it at 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 a protest rally, I think it's in 1965, he says, I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. Riots are the language of the unheard. Mm-hmm. Riots are the language of the unheard. And so when I was doing my research, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, riots are a language. Like it is a way to communicate, it is a way to say, you don't want to hear me, you don't want to listen. Let me set this on fire. Who's listening now? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And so <laughs> um, and if you think about even how riots play out today, as much as we like poo-poo them or say, like, this is counterproductive. Well, maybe, but would you be paying attention if this car was not set on fire? Would you simply say, oh, this is a peaceful protest and tonight on the seven o'clock news, like you move on, you know, it's not newsworthy. Um, But I think violence requires, it demands attention. Um, It demands a response. And so it is absolutely a language to me. It has rules and guidelines and it and it um, speaks and speaks loudly and forcefully. Um, and I think it is how America has operated for so long is it's used violence um, and force to propel or to sustain white supremacy. And so, um, you know, when we look at police brutality today, that is the state's way of communicating what it thinks about poor people wow. and black yeah. people. The, the language is so clear. It's so clear. Um, and so now black people have said, okay, this is how you speak. We know that language too. We're fluent. Now we're speaking back. And that's what, that's what we're seeing. Do you see the tactical use of violence as the main way forward for the Black Lives Matter movement? Is there any room left for nonviolent tactics like taking the knee? I think 
but the days of taking a knee are over. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you had a moment, you wasted it. (laughs) Right. And I also kind of think that, you know, when Nike came into the picture, the movement died. (laughs) I just think there's something about like the, the, the partnering of, of capitalism and, and um, consumerism to a movement that squashes or suppresses or silences the, the, the origins of that or, or the purposes of that mission. So, um, you know, but I will say that while I don't think violence is necessarily required to go forward from here, I will say force is absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, and I think that we have to be really, um, careful, but also honest again about how force can work and how it can be successful in a 21st century context. We cannot be satisfied with taking a knee because what results did that produce? Not very much. Right. Um, and so when I when I see people marching out in the streets and I see people, you know, stopping traffic and I see people saying we're taking down the statue, we're not asking for permission, we're taking it down. You know, um, that in it inspires me and encourages me and empowers me to think that, like, no, we're not just going to wait around for permission for you to start treating people like people or for you to start acting like Black Lives Matter. We're going to show you our lives matter. We're going to make our lives matter. Kelly Carter-Jackson is an assistant professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College. Her book, Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, is available in paperback this August. Thank you for being here, Dr. Carter-Jackson. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Cognitive Dissident is produced and edited by me, Kalyani Saxena. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time.